Hello everyone and welcome to Project Next. My name is Finn Blake and I'm using Coffee Dates to investigate the minds of CEOs, entrepreneurs and world leaders. I'm extremely excited to be bringing you unparalleled insight into some of the greatest minds out there. To kick off what is going to be a huge season one, I'm talking to Chris Judd, former AFL superstar and current CEO of Chris Judd Invest. There'll be something in this episode for everyone, particularly athletes who are thinking about what to invest their time in outside their given sport. Chris shares some tremendous insight into how he navigated the challenge of transitioning out of the elite sport into the corporate world, while sharing some secrets that will help any young professional to navigate the financial landscape of today. If you like or hate this episode, jump on our socials and let us know. Don't forget to subscribe and tell everyone that you know. Chris Judd, thank you very much for joining me on Project Next. Uh, you are the very special first guest. How does that feel? It's a big honour, Finn. Uh, you know, part of me is a little bit offended that you didn't wait till the audience was significant before getting me on. True. You could argue this is going to be uh, the way to get that significant audience. So either way, very happy to be here and, and looking forward to the chat. I want to go right back to the start. Can you sort of tell me about what you were like as a kid and, and did you have that competitiveness that you had in footy from day one? I did, yeah. So I... I was always pretty obsessive as a kid, probably without realising it, and and very competitive. Um, you know, summertime would be spent throwing a ball against a brick wall and hitting it with a cricket bat, and 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 winter befriend would be spent either kicking the footy with with my dad or some friends, or um, you know, dribbling the ball through through the gates out at the front of the house. Um, so yeah, always loved sport. Uh, Loved competing. I have heard on other forums skateboarding as well. That was when I was a bit older. So, yeah, skateboarding right. came in when I was about 14 or 15 um, and got right into that for a, a few years. Oh, actually, it came in a bit earlier than that when I was about 12, yeah, and, and got right into that for a few years. was never a brilliant skateboarder. I had some mates that were, were really good at it. Um, but, yeah, it was certainly a really active, active life growing up. So take me through the process at school. So you were very competitive at footy. You were, you know, on the track to get drafted. How were you in terms of your studies? Were you, you know, did you allocate enough time to that? Did you feel as though you gave it everything you could? Or? No, so I was, I was a, a pretty smart kid in primary school and then, you know, got to that age where you, you try and impress people by being naughty and, uh, you know, got fully fledged into that for a few years and was just incredibly lazy early high school sort of year seven to year 10, I didn't do anything. Um, I speak to my kids now who studied Chinese and I did Chinese for three years and I could say ni hao. I don't know how you could actually sit in a class for three years and not pick up, I can't even count to 10 yeah. in Chinese. And German, I did the same and the only thing I can say in German is das ist meine Hamburger. Which, which is? This is my hamburger, which is oh, is basically remembered because it's the same as you say it in English. <laughs> so it was really lazy until year 10. I put my finger out in year 11 and year 12 and, um, and ended up doing reasonably well in school. Um, but yeah, really from probably the age of 15, and I wasn't a professional athlete, but was really focused on on sport and football in particular. And, and that you know, was occupying the, the majority of my of my mental space. And so did you have actually have a plan B in case footy went, you know, bottoms up? I, I can't think of one at the time. Yeah. No, I mean, I knew I was, I was good at English and liked English. So, uh, I mean, I applied to study media and communications. 
when I was at school. Um, and I guess I was always aware that football may not have worked out, but I was really all chips, all chips in on on that that working out. And when you're a kid and and you you're a bit more confident than you probably should be, um, you know, there's often not a lot of not a lot of plan Bs. And to be honest, I didn't have a really clear even thought about what I wanted to do post football. And you know that's coming you know, mm. by the time you hit thirty. So um, maybe planning ahead something I, I could look to. <laughs> Good look to improve on. What What would the advice be to young kids who are sort of coming through those ranks at the moment? Then you know. Yeah, I mean, I think I think as a footballer, the, the important thing you need to do is you need to have some interest in other areas and be interested in the world outside of football, because football is a bit like a parallel universe that you may not want to stay in for the rest of your life. Um, so develop some interest and really understand who you are and what you're good at not just in a footballing sense, but in an overall sense. I mean, I think they're the most important things kids can do. Um, but like it or not, and it's not the advice that the school teachers would give you, you know, was it Napoleon who burnt the bridges when they went to invade somewhere? So if they lost the battle, there was no way of getting back over the rivers. I mean, there is an element of the, the people that succeed at things, um, put the most into it and pay the highest price. That, that They don't have this beautiful work-life balance. They they become outliers because they put more into it. So um, if you're really passionate about it and you decide that's what you want to do and be, um, scale up and have a good crack at it and then and then deal with, um, you know, deal with, with what else you're going to do if it, if, it, if it doesn't pan out. But, I mean, you do need to develop some interests before footy, during footy and, and because there's going to be a long, a long period of your life where you may not want football to be that, that core pillar of it. You obviously won a Brownlow and, and enjoyed some incredible success at the Eagles and captained your side to a premiership. Uh, what do you think sort of put you ahead of your opponents in terms of having that competitive nature? I know you touched on a little bit earlier that you were very competitive in things that you were passionate about. How did you, um, what was your mindset in terms of how you went about your business in your footy career? I guess I just had a view early on that humans are really predictable and that given the same set of stimulus, by and large, the vast majority of people act in a predictable way. Uh, so by that reckoning, um, I wanted to discover things that were effective for performance, that were uncomfortable for people to do, and do a lot of them. And I think it was really as simple as that. Now, in terms of also, and that's often about what, what time frame you value. So. You know, someone who's eating a burger and chips with a, a full-strength Coke every day, the, 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 the time preference for them is, is the, the immediate comfort they get from that. Longer term, that's not a really valuable way to be eating. And by and large, most people eating that know that's the case, but they're just putting a preference on the immediate comfort they're looking for. Uh, so I was able to, to um, delay instant gratification with a, a longer-term time preference, but probably not as long a time preference as, as I could have had. So what that looks like is, you know, West Coast back then you would train Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Monday, Wednesday, in pre-season, Monday, Wednesday, Friday would be skills, sort of three hours on your legs. Tuesday and Thursday would be running, you know, really full on running sessions. And then you have weights in the afternoon or cross training and then weekends would be off in pre-season. Uh, and that was, that was commonplace. That's how people trained. That's a huge volume of work on your legs and and you fast forward to 10 years down the track teams in pre-season don't really run two days in a row 
so they give their body a chance to to recover from high impact exercise. I saw those two rest days, which which in hindsight are really valuable to recover as a chance to to get the edge by training by by throwing on even more training than I would have otherwise done, or that, that other people in the competition were doing. So that that'd be a time I'd be at the track doing extra four hundreds. Um, sort of internally laughing at the soreness in my body and, you know, how I could still get through these sessions and not really noticing some of the, the clues. So that extra training, you know, I'd always make sure I trained on morning of Christmas day because other players wouldn't. So that was a... Is, a, that, is that to make you unpredictable? You, you mentioned that you had noticed that people would be predictable in the way that they go about things. Is that trying to go against the grain and become unpredictable? Well, not so much becoming unpredictable for unpredictable sake but it's because I wanted a different outcome so effectively the process had to be different and that's what outliers do outliers at the bottom of the pile have taken a different route and it hasn't worked out and outliers that succeed at something have taken a different route and it has worked out and I was just really clear from the start that I wanted a different outcome and, and as a result made made sure that the training and and process leading into to, to football and football season was was different to the norm. So what were the processes that you actually put in place to make sure that you were going to be ready once you, you know, did hang up the boots? Were those the things that you tried to emphasise in terms of preparation or were there other things that came a little bit later on? In terms of post-footy? Yeah, preparing for, you know, you obviously had this interest in business. Did you want to make sure that you were going to be ready by the time, the day you hang up the boots, did you want to jump straight into uh, you know, no, business? No, I or? didn't. I sort, of thought I'd have, I sort of thought I'd have six months to a year off. Um, and then my, my footy career ended abruptly. I mean, it was, it was clearly ending before I had a, a career ending injury. Um, but yeah, I, I thought I'd take six months to a year to really explore what I wanted to do. Um, but when footy did finish after six weeks, I was so bored and, um, and just dealing with that uncertainty of not knowing what the future could look like left me feeling really uneasy. So I, um, I just got into the workforce. I was lucky enough to get a position in a venture capital fund as an analyst, um, and it was a great starting point for a, a first, a first, um, a first job. And in the real world, I was able to learn some stuff off some smart people. So that was really base camp. And initially, I started that thinking I'd end up being an entrepreneur and start an operating business. Um, but sort of the way things panned out, things turned out differently. And really happy I didn't rush into such a big decision because you start a business. That's a a long-term relationship you have with that business, um, you know, with a lot of sort of things that become dependent on it. So I'm really glad I did take a bit of time before launching into something more significant. I do want to take you back to before you moved back to Melbourne, though. Uh, you were playing at the Eagles and you'd just come off a premiership. It was 2007. What sort of made the prospect of moving back to Melbourne come into your mind? Was that a you know, an opportunity-based thing? Was that a thing that where, where you thought, this is where the opportunities are going to be post my footy career, I want to maximise that? Or was it just, you know, missing home? Well, it was a, a combination of factors. The main factor was really I saw myself setting up my life in Melbourne going forward post-football. That was the case from the day I got drafted and that never really wavered. All my family were in Melbourne. Uh, a lot of my friends were in Melbourne. Um, and I, I was 24 by the age of that contract ended. And I just thought if I signed another contract and let's say came out at 27 or so, it was going to be getting harder to go to a different club and just be there for a, two or three years 
Um, you wouldn't be able to have a really meaningful impact there and it'd just be messy. So he'd end up staying at West Coast till the end of my career. And then I just thought it's going to be really hard to then move to Melbourne and then reignite the relationships with a lot of those Melbourne people who you haven't lived in the same state as for 13 years. I mean, your family would be fine. But in terms of your friendship circle, um, you know, whether you've got young kids by then, by the end of your career, you've developed some sort of business networks that are assistance in getting employment or, or some, some business opportunities. So I just thought at, at the midpoint in my career, and, and, and West Coast had won a premiership, it felt like, uh, you know, to be a part of that was sort of job done in, in some aspects. So rolling all that up, it just made the right sense to to move back to Melbourne and I rapped, I did. You know, I was I was really lucky to get to play for, for Carlton, which is an amazing footy club, along with West Coast, which is a brilliant footy club too. So to, to have that experience, to be able to play footy in my home state and also that, that, that pretty magical time at West Coast was, um, was in a lot of ways the best of both worlds. As a Collingwood supporter, I have to ask, what would have got you over the line to pull on the black and white jumper? Because <laughs> you do talk about the three-year buffer as well, and it did fit perfectly into the 2010 flag. <laughs> they, do, you, do you ever think about what could have been? No, I don't. I mean, I spoke to Melbourne, Essendon, uh, Collingwood and Carlton, and they were all, it was all pretty punchy. I mean, it was all probably done within a week. Uh, I didn't speak to anyone before that week. So it was all condensed into a pretty tight time frame. Um, oh, and I think it was a, a number of different factors. I think really I was looking to try and create or recreate the journey I'd been on at West Coast, which was the journey of a young group that was struggling um, and everyone sort of working together and, and climbing way up the ladder. Uh, I think, you know, that, that premiership session is such a special thing for, for players to be a part of. But what's special about it is the entire journey. You know, that year where teams win the premiership is is magical, but a lot of those things that lead to that success happen two, three, four years before the actual premiership occurs. And it's only in hindsight that you look back and you go, oh, that was a real turning point, you know, two years before the premiership or 18 months before or, uh, or four years before sometimes. You know, there's, there's just things in hindsight that have clicked, that change, and, and, and being a part of that whole journey is really special. So look, that was the hope. And, and look, in fairness, Carlton, you know, we started getting on that journey. It was We were bottom of the ladder when I went there, and, and there's senior players who had been a part of a much tougher AFL upbringing than I'd have, where I, I went to a, you know, a club with plenty of money and resources over in WA that, had had a couple of lean years, but by and large been used to success for an extended period. You know, Carlton had been bashed around for a while. There'd been draft sanctions and and the players there probably hadn't had senior players or as many senior players to model good behaviours on. So, um, you know, for those senior players to really pull it together and, and, and work their clacker off after a, a challenging introduction to AFL footy, um, you know, we had four or five really good years there where we, we climbed up ladder and, and played some finals footy. So... You know, that was some great times to be a part of as well. And so you've made the decision to go to Carlton. Did anything sort of come into your mind about the post-career networking opportunities or, you know, business opportunities? Did that ever sort of cross your mind when you were trying to make those decisions as well? It was really just focused on footy. I yeah. mean, Carlton, I wanted to play for a big Melbourne club. You know, I grew up going to the MCG with my dad to watch footy. So to be able to play uh, for Carlton... At, 
you know, we're going to play a considerable number of games at the MCG was really special. I knew or, or got comfort they were going to be able to spend enough on, um, on their footy department. So that was really important. Um, and then, like I said, you know, they had a developing young list. You had, you know, Matty Cruiser, Mark Murphy, Bryce Gibbs, and a host of other young, you know, talented up-and-coming players. And I, I really wanted to play with those guys. So, yeah, I really kept it to football. But this, the commercial aspects were really based around what they could spend on their football department because I, I was sort of aware that unless you could spend enough, um, makes it very hard to, to have success. What does that spending go into, by the way? Is it, you know, the football department getting more facilities or coaching or what was most important to you? Well, I was coming off my groins were completely buggered then. So at the time, I was particularly sensitive how much was going to go through the sports science department. Um, and then all, all the facilities and equipment, you know, whether it's Pilates reformers to treadmills that can take weight off your body to really elite physios, those sorts of things are just really important now for, for professional athletes. And uh, I think it's a more level playing field now than it was, but particularly back then, that was before the soft cap. Mm. You know, it was becoming a more and more unlevel playing field on which clubs could spend what. And, um, you yeah, know, I was pretty focused on that, that aspect of it. And so you go to Carlton, win another Brownlow, easy as. Just, you know, that that's part and parcel for, for Chris Judd's career, isn't it? Just, um, you need it. We need it too, Finn. Yeah. So you, you've you've had this success. Not a lot of team success, unfortunately. But it gets to around 2015. How did you sort of know in in your mind that the time was coming close to being finished? <laughs> it's a bit like any time I watch Cars, I feel like I'm watching my football career. You know, the, the movie started as the young quick car, and then uh, I think Lightning McQueen at one stage he asks Doc Hudson. He says, "How do you know?" How do you know it's time to retire or something? And Doc Hudson goes, the other other cars will tell you, you know, by the fact that they're much quicker than you. And it's really just that. You just know. um, I mean, you sort of know a long way out. You know you're just not quite there. But eventually it just becomes plainly obvious to see. And I I wish I'd have retired earlier. Um, It's probably the only real regret I've been footy. Um, Did you fall out of love with it a little bit? No, not really. Well, no, I didn't. I mean, I fell out of love because I couldn't do it properly anymore. Yep. Um, but no, I still always loved the playing component of footy um, and that competing. And, and yeah, I, I always loved that. Um, but the injuries I got late were just weren't worth, the, weren't worth it. I mean, Carlton was struggling and I was a very average player by then. No, I wasn't helping. Um, but it's hard to see that at the time. Um, mm. But, I mean, that last 18 months I would have had, you know, a knee reconstruction, a wrist reconstruction, an elbow operation, nerve in my Achilles severed and plantaris removed. You know, that's five good-sized operations for 18 months of footy where I wasn't contributing anything and the team uh, was struggling. Um, you know, I would have just been better off giving those games to, to kids in the end. But when you're in it, you sort of... You don't know how things are going to pan out. You, you think things will get better and you think you're contributing, but um, yeah, I, mean, I probably should have gone a, a year or two earlier. And, and, and so you, you speak about not really thinking about it before it happens, but when you're in the process of knowing that you're you know, coming to the close, what sort of processes were you putting in place to make sure that you could have as seamless as possible a retirement? So, I mean, I never gave money for other people to invest on my behalf. I always did 
invested in direct equities myself. Um, you know, so that there's some challenges with that. You know, I got smashed during the GFC, but there's some really good learnings, and I'm wrapped. I did that. Like, uh, you know, I bought a business with a friend in 2013, and an apparel business, Jagged. Yep. Um, so those sorts of things were about getting things in place for the next chapter. Um, and I was actively, you know, I met a guy whilst I was investing in direct equities from 18, I met a guy when I was 28 that really taught me how to invest properly. So I was slowly starting to get a, a level of sophistication with investing and starting to understand what I was doing at some level. So I was really just evolving all those things, having a, a private operating business that, I mean, that was the second one I started, my first one with the same mate when I was about 24. Um, so I was always interested and active in activities outside of football, even though there wasn't a really clear plan of, this is exactly what I'll do when it when it finishes. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? So you were 28 and this guy's come along and sort of giving you the mentorship to really immerse yourself in, you know, the investment landscape. How valuable do you think that mentorship was in getting you to where you wanted to be in this industry? No, that's super valuable. Um, it's super valuable and it's also important not to get stuck into sort of a hero worship type situation with with mentors because no one's perfect no one knows everything um and you've got to find that balance so if you don't copy best practice in any field you'll take too long to figure it all out for yourself and you'll never become a high performer at it but if you only copy best practice you're never going to be as good as the elite people in that field because by the time you've copied them they've evolved and they're doing something different i, I get a bit annoyed not annoyed i don't think people that just quote warren buffett all day in investing are adding much value because if I'm an investor and I want to invest in Warren Buffett, I can buy Berkshire, Hath Berkshire Hathaway shares. Mm -hmm. um, you want people that are creating their own IP and can think about things for themselves. Um, you know, because they quote Buffett's views on airlines, yeah. you know, saying I'll, I'll never buy an airline again from the, the 90s or whatever he said. And then of course he changes and evolves as the situation changes and he's buying airlines again. Like, that's what people do. Um, so what do you think the biggest takeaways from mentorship are and what would you look for in terms of, uh, I know you would have had that thought that you didn't want to take everything away from them um, at that time, but what do you think the values are in mentorship then? Look, I, to be honest, I think role models are great, but don't, don't try and model your whole life on someone. Learn bits about things off them that are, are, have utility and, and that you can take away and, and use in your own life and potentially improve on. Well, I think that, that anti-role model is also really powerful. You know, I often look at people five years older, 10 years older, 20 years older, and if things haven't worked out for them, try and work out why and, and try and avoid that. Like, don't spend an even amount of energy on that, that hope and fear, if you like. And, um, you know, I've been, from, from the day I first got drafted, I was able to learn off some of the best players in the competition. Post-football, I've been lucky enough to learn from some amazing business people and, uh, and some amazing investors. And, and still to this day, uh, you know, through the podcast I run, I get to sit down with some of the best fund managers in Australia, um, which has been such a gift. But just because they're brilliant fund managers, I don't then say I've got to do whatever they say or... or take their word as gospel, I think the idea that you've still got to think for yourself is is of overriding importance, uh, no matter how good your, your mentor is. Is it almost like taking pieces of a mosaic 
from each person and then sort of piecing them together to get your own sort of nuanced view of the world, I suppose. Completely. Yeah, yeah completely. Yeah. And um, yeah, and still being able to think clearly and, and, and you might still take the other side of uh, on, on issues to people that you really admire that you think are much smarter than you. But uh, at the end of the day, you really want to live and die by your own decisions. You don't just want to be uh, copying someone someone forever and when you make that jump is important too like you know even with footballers like uh, the best footballers don't look at their diary and work out what they've got for the week training wise they're, they're creating their own training programs that fit in with what they've got to do with the group but you don't want to do that as soon as you get drafted because you just don't have enough knowledge yet so you've, you've got to find that balance I think eventually you need to take more and more responsibility for yourself but your knowledge has to be at least at a certain level before that's probably appropriate. So I just want to sort of go back to when you first started the investment business. Do you think you speak about all these attitudes that you've got now and how you sort of uh, view businesses in general and people, how they go through their careers. Was that always the attitude when you first started your investment business or has it sort of changed as it's gone? Uh, no, look, it's changed, but there are some similarities to football. I mean, right now, as an investor, so I've got a a small finance media business, if you like, if you put that to one side. As an investor, uh, I, I really want to be, um, I guess, different to how institutions would invest, and that's that's similar to how I wanted to be as a footballer. I wanted the preparation to be different. And when you're a private investor, you don't carry the same job risk that uh, fund managers or, or institutional investors carry. And by that, I mean that when you're a fund manager or an institutional money manager and you fail at an investment, but all the other smart fund managers fail as well, you don't lose your job. But when you fail differently, there's job risk attached and you do lose your job because you're the only idiot that invested in a certain in a certain asset or business. Um, but often those, by nature, the fact that they were non-consensus views and you fail differently, that's that's often where the biggest opportunity is. So uh, as a private investor, I'm often on the outlook for those sorts of opportunities that perhaps carry job risk, uh, you know, for institutional professional investors, but but offer some outsized returns. So take, you know, a, a, a huge amount of risk. The fact that I don't have the balance sheet of those professional investors mean that I can get in and out of positions quicker, um, Often the counterparty when I'm buying or selling is a more emotive investor than when you're in institutional grade uh, businesses or asset classes. So um, I guess really just looking to optimise what edge I have, which is, is sort of a similar mindset to what I look to do when I was playing footy. You've come into the finance business and you have tried to sort of break away from footy. You did footy media for a couple of years and you know footy classified and uh, Triple M and those kinds of things. How did you go about navigating that in the early days when you would have had a lot of critics going this bloke is just a footy player what's he doing in finance he's got no idea because there, there would have no doubt been people who were naysayers yeah i quite like that phase of the of the journey that that initial phase where people don't think you'll be good at it um that almost sits that's quite comfortable i think it's harder when you've been successful at something and there's that heaviness that comes with that success so you know, when I was an 18-year-old, I got drafted and I barely played footy in a couple of years and I had a couple of shoulder reconstructions. There were sort of elements 
you know, some people wondered if my body would stand up to AFL footy, and I, I, I found that there's almost a comfort in that. Um, and it's no different to now. I still meet people um, now, and, and they'll think because I played football in my 20s that I somehow shouldn't be able to do anything for the outside of football for the next 50 years of my life. Um, and I guess because I'm comfortable in what I'm doing and I'm enjoying it, it's going well, um, you know, that, that can be more amusing than, than anything else. So it's not something that I, I spend a lot of time on. It, it would potentially be harder if I was working in a fund and had to, you know, raise capital or, or things like that. But there's, there's actually a lot of footy players, you know, Leo Barry, for instance, quite a few that have made that transition and are, are doing really well in finance. What would the biggest advice be that you would give to people in terms of what attributes they should have to be successful in this industry? Just learn to think for yourself yep. by a mile. I mean, for so so many years, people have told sugar was fine for you and fat was the enemy, then fat's fine for you, sugar's it. Like, Cigarettes. learn to think for yourself. Yep. Which is, is rarer than people think. And so you touched on another sort of business venture you've got going on on the side a little bit earlier, uh, Jagged. How is that? How does that fit into your life, and and how much have you sort of invested mentally into into you know making that a profitable and successful business? Oh, that's been great. So it's it's managed by the Greens, who are close friends of of ours, Steve and Michelle. They're doing a great job. Shout um, out to Steve and Michelle. That's right. Um, and it's been a really interesting journey. So Steve and I really bought that in two thousand and thirteen. Um, when we were involved in some bike events and we were getting these bike guernseys manufactured by a competitor and decided we should do it ourselves and bought an existing triathlon business, which was Jagged, uh, before it just got completely rebranded and, and pivoted and really focused on women's activewear. Um, and, you know, Beck and Michelle have a huge role in that. I was sat on the board of Jagged for a couple of years. I'm not now, I'm, I'm a a shareholder, Beck's really active in the business, active on the design side of it, uh, along with Michelle. Um, and it's going from strength to strength. I think work from home has been a big tailwind for active wear. Um, and even as people come back to the office place, I think there it feels like there is a trend to, to people dressing with more comfort even when they are at the office. So, um, yeah, it's been a really, really exciting journey to be a part of and just seeing... Um, it's hard not to admire the perseverance that Steve and Michelle in particular, but all the employees at Jagged put into that business because anyone who's been involved in a startup, which effectively it was, knows that it's a, um, it's just a seriously long journey and requires a huge amount of effort. So um, Yeah, I was going to say, especially at the start when, you know, activewear was probably on the up and everyone was sort of starting to transition to that back in, what, what, what year did you say, 2013? 2013 we bought the business, yeah. So what were the biggest challenges in terms of trying to get yourself out in front of the pack? Because it would have been a pretty, you know, crowded market. I mean, the biggest challenge was none of us had any apparel experience yeah. or retail experience. So yeah. it was one of those ones you would never, if you knew what you knew now, you would never have jumped in and done it and would have missed out on a great opportunity. Um so yeah, I mean, I think that was that was the biggest challenge. Everyone involved in it, from the shareholders to the people working at full time, were, were really learning on the spot. Um, yeah, I, I think had a, a strong social media presence pretty early on, 
which I think was a, a, a big part of of the business. But just you know, things just kept improving. We started off a really low base, but there was just consistent, gradual improvement. And I think as long as something's improving, there, there's hope that it's going to make it. And um, you know, the last few years, it's really hit its straps. And um, yeah, they're, they're they're all doing a great job down there. To sort of wrap things up, there's you've got the three big sort of pillars of what has existed in your career, probably the footy component and now the finance investment component. And I'd probably consider the jagged component as well, sort of a foundational stone almost of, of what you've done. Uh, reflecting upon where you sat when you were 18 years old and you were just drafted to the Eagles, what do you sort of think about now? Do you, do you ever go... I actually really thought that I would end up where I am now or has it sort of gone along as it's gone along and, and you know, you've let it change where it needs to? But to be honest, I mean, the thing I'm most thankful about is that I, I, don't, I don't really spend any time thinking about my footy career. Yeah. Which isn't to say that I wasn't didn't have a ball and wasn't really lucky to have the career that I had and, and didn't enjoy it. But, um, you know, I've got four kids that are healthy, that are still talking to me, I'm still married. You know, like these things really dwarf anything that happened in a football world. And, you know, assuming those things go right, they're going to dwarf anything good or bad that happens commercially. So uh, when you put so much into professional sport like I did, uh, once it ends, you, you realise that um, whilst it was special and important to me, it wasn't important full stop. And, you know, that, that appreciation of, of family and health and, and friendships, um, you know, they're the things that are going to endure and, and dwarf the importance of, 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 of anything I'm going to do commercially. Um, so not losing sight of that and, and, you know, making sure those big things, which are, you know, family and health, make sure they stay, stay solid because if they don't, none of the other things are going to feel important. Well, that, that sort of sounds like a really optimistic take on it. And I think that you probably are very optimistic in terms of everything that you do. But just to go on the other side of the coin, what do you think, do you ever reflect upon your biggest failures and take those learnings out of, you know, what you've done in the past to guide how you go about things in the future? And what are those sort of big fail, failures that if you do, um, what were they that you reflect upon now? Yeah, I think maybe overconfidence at times or, um, you know, I mentioned that time horizon stuff. I was able to put off instant gratification for something slightly longer term but not able to think really long term. So um, focusing on that, I think also that idea of, of um, just authenticity, which gets spoken about a lot. Um, you know, there are times in AFL I probably felt there's a certain way you need to act as a captain or as a, as a senior player. Um, and that understanding that you know, the main thing you need to do is act uh, how you are because that's, that's what is more powerful over time. Um, and just that, that I've always, certainly now, but I, I think I've always just had a really clear uh, view of just not wanting to waste time. You know, time's finite. Uh, you know, there are certain things that you know aren't going to be a waste of time, whether it's, learning, uh, spending time with family or people that are close to you, things around your health. Um, you know, and commercial opportunities are really important too because they can buy you time elsewhere in your life. Mm -hmm. um, 
but once I have that feeling that I'm doing something where I'm not adding value or not learning or it's not good for my health or it's not supporting some of those other key pillars, uh, really being focused on on moving on because um, you know, time's finite. For sure. And so I think one last one to finish off because I'm, I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts on this. If you could go back and speak to the young Eagles draftee that um, you know, was from Melbourne and was about to go off to Perth. What would the one piece of advice be that you would give to him? Well, the thing I wonder is I, I was just took football so seriously and was really uptight. You know, it was quite a stressed athlete. Um, and I, I just wonder if I hadn't have been, if the outcome would have been different. It would have been great to be more relaxed. Um, you know, I look back to foot. Any time I'm, it was footage of me playing footy or training. I was always grimacing, and I just found that 14 year. Whilst I loved it, I just found it really stressful. Um, and so I wonder if I could have just been a bit more relaxed. Um, you know, not not worried so much. Um, Is that something that you sort of noticed in retrospect as well? You know, the grimacing and... and, Yeah, I didn't realise how stressed I was during my football career till it was over. Yeah. I I didn't realise at all just how uptight I was. Um, And so, yeah, maybe maybe just the ability to relax a little bit more and that, um, you know, that would have been been the advice. Awesome. Chris Judd, thank you very much for joining me. It's been an honour to have you on for the first episode and I... I think we, we might have another chat down the track when there's uh, a little bit more of an audience, but I, I really thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on, Finn. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it for episode one of Project Next. Thank you so much to Chris for joining me, as well as Max Fisher, who was on the tools for this episode, as well as Declan Shields, Jai Jones, and the rest of the incredibly talented Jam TV team for their supreme editing work. Another shout out to Lars Designs for the amazing Project Next branding that I'm so proud of. And a final extra special thanks to you for coming on the journey so far with me. I'm so excited to continue working with you to create the best business podcast on the market. So don't forget to leave some feedback below. That's it for now. Looking forward to an app two very soon. In the meantime, take care.